This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, defusing the Cuban immigration crisis and what's next as the opening between the United States and Cuba improves. But first, Natalie Oninger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The World Health Organization sounded alarm bells in the Western Hemisphere this week due to an outbreak of the Zika virus. The WHO, the World Health Organization, predicted that 3 to 4 million people will be exposed to the virus, which can cause hydrocephaly in newborns. Hydrocephaly is a condition that causes smaller-than-normal skull size and brain damage. Brazil is already reporting hundreds of such cases. Margaret Chan, the director general of the WHO, said her organization was reacting quickly to the threat. The level of concern is high, as is the level of uncertainty. Questions abound. We need to get some answers quickly. For all these reasons, I have decided to convene an emergency committee under the international health regulations. The committee will meet in Geneva on Monday, 1st February. Mosquitoes spread the Zika virus, and it has already appeared in Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Hawaii. One child born recently in Hawaii suffers now from microcephaly linked to the Zika virus, which the child's mother caught in Brazil. Brazil will deploy 22,000 troops next month to educate people about how to limit the spread of the disease and to fight mosquitoes. Only about 20% of those who catch Zika will show any symptoms, which include rashes, a mild fever, and an onset of pink eye. Doctors remain uncertain about the links between Zika and microcephaly. The WHO says the virus can actively be found in mosquitoes in 20 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. The Obama administration moved this week to further open trade with Cuba, despite the long-standing U.S. economic embargo. The Commerce Department issued new regulations that allow U.S. companies to lend money not only to Cuban entrepreneurs, but also to strike deals directly with Cuban state-owned companies. The measures also make it easier for U.S. studios to undertake film projects in Cuba. And the new regulations further ease restrictions on direct tourist travel to the communist country. The United States has maintained an economic embargo against Cuba for the past 56 years. But the Obama administration has removed some of those restrictions since the country's move to normalize relations more than a year ago. We'll have more on the diplomatic and commercial opening with Cuba later on this program. It might be illegal to use marijuana recreationally in Chile, but the officials there say the country now has the largest medical marijuana plantation in Latin America. Chile approved the legal growing of marijuana for medical use last year, and officials say their legal pot farm has almost 7,000 marijuana plants. Once the marijuana is harvested, the DAEA Foundation, which owns the farm, hopes to extract enough marijuana oil to treat about 4,000 patients. 
But the risks of such a crop are still high. Chile's army guarded the farm for a time to make sure the high-quality seeds were not smuggled out. And now the farm is protected by electric fences to keep thieves from coming in to steal part of the valuable crop. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. As we heard earlier this week, the U.S. government moved to reduce restrictions on trade with Cuba, and the new regulations also make it a bit easier to travel to the communist country. With U.S. airlines gearing up for direct flights to the island, perhaps as early as this summer, a new era is ahead, not just for U.S.-Cuban relations, but also for tourism and business between the two countries. For insight, we turn to Eric Hirschberg, the director of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Hirschberg recently returned from a trip to Havana. We talked to him via Skype from Washington, D.C. And importantly, this interview was conducted before this week's announcement of changed regulations. Hirschberg discussed the need for those changes and called for even more cooperation between the two countries in our interview. The question of whether the opening to the United States is going to enable the Cubans to achieve their economic objectives, particularly with regard to economic growth, um, is one um, urgent current issue. I think that that's related to um, the fate of the economic reforms that Raul Castro launched several years ago um, in the so-called guidelines for updating the Cuban economy. Uh, And that is in part a matter of how the opening to the United States works out, but it's also a matter of whether they can attract um, investment from other countries, uh, whether they can um, move Cubans into more high-value-added, more knowledge-intensive, technologically-intensive areas of economic activity. Um, And it's related to the question of whether a number of institutions in Cuba will evolve in such a way as to facilitate higher productivity and ultimately economic growth. Those institutions include a variety of areas of support for um, producers, um, ranging from the provision of credit to the creation of um, properly working wholesale markets. And finally, it really has a lot to do with whether they are able to introduce a reform um, that does away with the multiple exchange rates. Um, Cuba urgently needs to unify its currency. Absent that, prices are very difficult to gauge. Um, um, Economic actors um, um, face severe complications in making decisions um, about their their firms, about their businesses, Um, and foreign investors do as well. And the multiple exchange rates end up being a disincentive for um, investment, whether domestically or from abroad. So those are some of the things that they really need to deal with and that um, the jury is very much out um, as to whether the system is up for the task. Currency is certainly complex. As you know that this program was visiting Cuba very recently as you were, and certainly we found that that handling the multiple exchange rates was difficult. The other thing I think that we found on the economic sense was that in our discussions off the record with Cuban officials, a sense of disappointment regarding the embargo. And I wonder, because we both know that that the embargo, the U.S. embargo, economic embargo against Cuba is linked to U.S. domestic politics. And because we're now fully into that presidential cycle in the U.S. 
And there are certain candidates with Cuban-American backgrounds that seem to be at least still in the running. Isn't that expectation that the embargo was going to get solved a, a little bit unrealistic on the, on the part of the Cubans? I don't think the Cubans thought that the embargo was going to be resolved in the, in the short term, at least not the Cubans um, who were part of negotiating the um, opening with the Obama administration. They were very aware um, of the political complexities in the United States and specifically of the um, um, highly unlikely decision of the, the Congress. That is, I mean, they knew the relative um, balance of, of forces in the U.S. Congress, and this Congress is not going to vote to do away with the embargo. Um, I do think that they um, perhaps had hoped for more aggressive regulatory changes um, from the Obama administration, from the executive branch. Um, uh, but I think overall they're satisfied with what the administration has done. Uh, we had occasion to speak with very senior Cuban government officials, um, and for the most part they feel that the Obama administration has proceeded um, um, with, with appropriate haste and um, with um, good intentions. Um, I think they found the negotiations to have been um, productive and um, respectful, which is something that matters to them very much. Um, they are very much aware that um, there are not only limits um, placed upon the administration by the Congress, but also that, as you alluded to, that it is certainly plausible that a new administration would be hostile to these reforms. And they wish, I think appropriately, um, that the Obama administration move as quickly as possible to create fait accomplis so that in the event that a Republican administration were to come to the White House, um, the costs of backtracking would be higher than they would otherwise be. Um, for example, the current regulations as, um, as revised by the Obama administration um, allow so-called people-to-people exchanges um, in something like, if I recall, 12 categories, and people fitting into those 12 categories um, can participate on um, tours of Cuba organized by tour groups under the rubric of people-to-people -people exchange. Um, and they don't need to seek a specific license from the Treasury Department um, to enable them to travel. Now, one thing that the administration could do is to open that further by saying that any American can participate in people-to-people -people exchanges as an individual. That is, that they don't need to go through um, licensed travel organizers, travel operators. I think that's the kind of reform that could um, significantly boost the numbers of travelers to Cuba and that the administration can and I hope will um, move ahead during the coming weeks. We see this change with airlines, and we likely will see airlines with regular flights, not just charter flights to Cuba, sometime in 2016, likely summer. Uh, that sort of reform seems then to be following on that. Indeed, and I think that, um, again, once you have um, services like that in place, uh, and people are accustomed to the fact that they can go to the airport, get on a plane to Havana, um, it would be uh, more difficult for uh, a successor administration um, to uh, explain to the American people that they no longer have that right. 
and we certainly will see maybe as many as 30 flights a day out of Miami to to Havana and and elsewhere in Cuba if if those reforms go ahead. I'm I'm interested in what you heard from those senior Cuban officials though in in mentioning that in in my discussions with with people at the embassy and also with Cuban officials I found them to be amazingly parallel that the issues that they thought were going to be the hardest um seemed to be the same for both sides and and also the issues of cooperation seem to be the same for both sides and and I found that the number one issue that both sides wanted to talk about was this issue of uh, what might be called fugitives from justice that the Cubans want people um, brought to justice who they feel were part of CIA sponsored terrorism and of course um, the US would like people who have gone to Cuba to elude US justice to be returned yeah my my hunch is that neither side is going to budge on that and they're going to have to agree to disagree and so I wonder what about uh, the issues that you found from Cuban officials that they wanted to talk about the most? Well, I think that they want to figure out a way, um, and everyone knows this is not simple, but um, some mechanism is needed to get through um, the issue of property claims, um, where on the one hand, there are U.S. citizens um, who uh, have claims against the Cuban government, um, largely but not exclusively based on the seizure of assets um, or during the initial years of the revolution, um, the Cuban government in turn, in turn um, claims that um, it is due damages um, both from the embargo and from um, the um, costs, um, both human and material, um, incurred during the Bay of Pigs invasion and other um, American um, actions um, in and against Cuba. Um, that's going to be a very complicated discussion. Um, it is a negotiation that is now underway, um, and I think that both parties see it as something that, that is, is high on their agenda, and both parties see it as something that's going to be complicated to work out. Um, there is a I think very um, insightful um, study that's just been published, uh, authored by Richard uh, Feinberg from the Brookings Institution, um, that sketches um, some ways to get through this particular um, matter. But both sides um, are, you know, have very strong, strongly felt positions, and there's a lot at stake. Um, and the fact of the matter is that as long as these issues remain pending. Uh, they complicate other aspects of the relationship. So, for example, you mentioned the restoration of direct flight service. Well, one of the issues has been that um, the Cubans can't have an airplane land in the United States while these claims are pending um, because they run the risk that the plane will be impounded. And so um, the issue of resolving property claims um, is an important one. Um, it's not one that's going to be worked out quickly, however. This is going to take um, lengthy negotiations. Um, down the road, I think that um, addressing the status of, the, um, of Guantanamo, where the United States operates a military base and where the Cubans say it is occupying Cuban territory, is also going to be a thorny issue. I think ultimately it will be resolved in such a way that the territory is returned to Cuba, um, but ultimately can be a long time from now. What haven't we covered that you think is important? In a context where... The Venezuelan um, 
government um, and the, the ruling party in Venezuela that has just dramatically mismanaged that country, uh, that country's affairs, um, and and really catastrophically destroyed political institutions and for that and 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 the economy. Um, I think that we're in a moment where a political transition is underway um, and where it is in everyone's interest that that be an orderly political transition. And by everyone's interest, I mean um, really everyone, including the Cubans. And in that sense, I think that with the Cubans having a direct line to the ruling party and the Americans having a perhaps not quite as direct line to sectors of the opposition, um, I think it is possible that their good offices um, may help to dissuade the contesting parties in Venezuela um, from taking actions that are likely to um, create rather than mitigate um, conflict. Um, again, to date, um, neither side has been prepared to articulate that position publicly. Um, but I think that it's an area where they can collaborate and where it would be both to their benefit, uh, not to mention to the benefit of Venezuelans. Thank you so much for those insights. Thanks for joining us, Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Rick. Coming up, insight into the Cuban refugee crisis in Central America. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this month, countries in Central America and Mexico came to some agreement about at least 8,000 Cuban refugees stranded in Central America. But for more than two months, those refugees were trapped on the border between Nicaragua and Costa Rica, when Nicaragua, a close ally of Cuba, closed its borders to the refugees. Countries in the region are now providing air and bus transportation to the refugees to get them around Nicaragua and headed to the U.S. border and some have already made the trip successfully. But at least 3,000 more are stuck in Panama, still attempting to make the trip northward. What has spurred this exodus is fear by some Cubans that better relations with the U.S. will mean a change in U.S. immigration laws, laws that currently accept all Cubans who reach the U.S. by land route as political refugees. Carlos Sandoval is a specialist on migration issues at the Universidad de Costa Rica, and he has written about the Cuban immigration issue for the popular online magazine El Faro. We reached him in Barcelona, Spain, via Skype, to talk about the current situation. Some people say 200,000 Central Americans leave their countries every year. Others estimate that they, they are about 300,000, but I don't one figure or the other, the, the reality is that immigration is a, is a is an everyday life uh, situation in Central America. And now 
at the end of last year, we had the, the, the arrival of Cuban citizens in, in Costa Rica after they left Cuba and arrived to Ecuador. And now they are trying to cross Central America and then Mexico, attempting to, to reach the United States. I, for me, what has been missing, at least in the, is the relationship between their arrival to Costa Rica and the issue about the, what is called in the state the Cuban Adjustment Act, which was approved in 1966, and which is, for me, the kind of framing without which it's quite difficult to address the issue of why uh, Cubans decided to cross Central America instead of crossing, attempting to cross and reach uh, uh, Florida. I think that kind of discussion has been missing in Costa Rica. And additionally, it uh, seems to me that the Costa Rican government took the decision regarding the, the, uh, providing Cubans um, humanitarian visa without any previous negotiation with the rest of Central American governments. And in the context of, of the political tension within Central America, that decision was not read very well. I mean, uh, it was it was read in terms of, well, this is the Costa Rican government doing things that affect the rest of the region without any consultation, and this is, this was a, an, a, a, a for at least for me a, a negative starting point in whole, this whole issue. Now they are starting to 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 leave Costa Rica in order to arrive in El Salvador and Guatemala. But the issue is that, I mean, uh, we are, the distance between San Jose and San Salvador uh, means an hour, less, less than an hour in uh, a flight, but the distance between San Salvador and the nearest U.S.-Mexican border is more or less 3,000 500 miles. I mean, it's, it's a very long distance, and I don't know what kind of arrangements can be done between El Salvador, the Salvadoran government and the Guatemalan government with the government of Mexico in order to facilitate the transit in this very long territory that they need to cross if they want to arrive in Texas or in any other U.S. state. You mentioned that the Costa Rican government did not do enough to talk to its neighbors in, in Guatemala and El Salvador. I, I find this very interesting because many of the governments that are involved in this question are what you might call leftist governments. You have a leftist government in El Salvador, a tacitly leftist government in, in Costa Rica, the Cuban government, certainly very leftist. And, and um, yet all of these governments do not seem to be in, in synchronicity 
about these issues, not to mention the Nicaraguan government. Perhaps I would underline that the Costa Rican decision to provide Cuban citizens with a visa, humanitarian visa, needed to be discussed in advance with the neighbor governments, mainly the Nicaraguan government and the government of El Salvador, because when they they, they were informed that that visa, that visas were provided, they they didn't have any 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 background about the, the kind of negotiations that they were they were taking place, and this is a, an issue that I think made all the efforts that have been taking place during the last uh, weeks and months even more difficult. I mean, I think this is a, from the beginning, this is a regional issue. It's not a nation-based issue. And I think the Costa Rican government, especially the, the migration office in Costa Rica, took the issue as a national issue instead of framing the issue as a as a regional one and and this is this, this was a the first um, difficulty that um, have been quite hard to 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 overcome I wonder if this is also a bit indicative of Central American politics in the region um, and also some of what we might say is a cultural reflection. If you talk to people in El Salvador or you talk to people in Guatemala, their criticism of people in Costa Rica, their criticism of Ticos would be that Ticos see themselves as above and setting the agenda for all of Central America, sometimes without consultation. So is this an example of that in action? I would say yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think the absence of consultation was read as a as part of this sense of Ticos perceived themselves as superior of the rest of Central America, which is a very much kind of representation that uh, both Ticos and the rest of Central America have of themselves for historical reasons and all the rest. And I think um, it was a, a negative start point in, in, in this whole issue of the Cuban citizens uh, seeking to, to arrive in, in the United States. So this makes it even more complex because this is something that the United States is often criticized for, too, of coming into situations and not consulting with allies. And, and here we have a U.S. law and U.S. policies that, that's actually driving Cubans to, to visit these various countries. The Cuban Adjustment Act, which, was, uh, which came into, uh, to, to act in, in 1966 in the United States, is a kind of, of, of legal framing which prompted the Cubans to try to arrive to the U.S., crossing Central America. Adding to, to that issue, it's, it's also important to consider that a um, few years ago, the government of Ecuador uh, changed the immigration law in such a way that now Cubans uh, don't need visa 
in order to arrive in Ecuador. This, what the, this is another change that need to take into account in order to understand why in the first place they arrived to Ecuador. Then it came the issue of the humanitarian visa provided by the Costa Rican government, and then things become became more complicated. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Carlos Sandoval of Universidad de Costa Rica, who has written various articles about migration for the online website El Faro. He joins us via Skype from Barcelona, Spain. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for our program about Cuba and its refugees. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. Latin Pulse is also now available through the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot O-R-G, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Natalie Ottinger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Mm-hmm.